finally, finally going to wrap up my sermon series on 2 John. And uh, so those of you that thought that Art's sermon uh, series on Romans was long, newsflash. This has actually taken longer. I started this series uh, back in 2017 and did my second part in 2018, and we're finally finishing it up today and wrapping it up. So can I get an amen? Um, maybe that just goes to show how little we really want me preaching. I, I don't know why people keep giving me a mic, but we'll get there. Uh, so children, uh, as we're going through the sermon today, I want you guys to pay attention to three things, okay? The first thing is I'm going to tell you something about bees. Second thing is... What did the FBI agent use to catch a spy? Okay? And the third thing is, what truth should we know and protect above all else? Okay, so children, what are the three things? First one is bees. Second one is the FBI agent with spies. And the third thing is the, the truth that we should protect and know above all else. Okay, so as you guys are turning to 2 John, uh, and I hope that you are and you have your Bibles with you, um, which if you're having trouble locating it, it's in between 1 and 3 John. Allow me to briefly review verses 1 through 6. So 2 John is written by the Apostle John. Uh, and it's written to a church. When he talks about lady, he's, he's uh, I believe, referring to a body of believers or a church. And his greeting is pregnant with meaning. Uh, but you're going to have to go back and listen to my earlier sermons to get the full depth of that meaning. But to briefly summarize, we see the importance of truth. And that truth is a loving truth. Or another way of putting it, that real truth, biblical truth, is expressed by love. The expression or the action of truth is love. John then goes further into defining truth and love in verses 4 through 6, being defined as the commands of God. Now, this, generally speaking, is the entire word of God, but specifically, John references loving one another. Now, you can also sense the personal relationship uh, with this body of believers as his joy is overflowing as he hears about how the children of the church are walking in this truth. Again, there's much more that I could say about this, but as we go into the reading of God's word, uh, please pay special attention to the words truth, commandment, and love. Now, just as a side note, uh, I, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but the song that we just sung before this sermon hit me. I was standing up front, and normally I'm sitting in the back, and I don't hear all of your voices behind me because I'm in the back, but I do love coming up to the front and hearing all of us together confessing this wonderful truth in song, the Apostles' Creed. And I just, 
it struck me. I just thought that it was really cool. So think about that as well as we go through this sermon. So if you could, please stand and turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Second John, starting at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, who has called each one of us to yourself, to be set apart as a community of your people, to do your will, please be with us this morning. Give us ears to hear your truth. As you have proclaimed to the prophets of old. And Lord God, give your servant your words that we may glorify you in our every thought and deed. Please grant us your mercy and grace through the life and death of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Bees. Honeybees are fascinating creatures. In any given hive, there can be upwards of about 40,000 bees inside, most of which are worker bees. Uh, there's basically three types of, of uh, bees in a hive. First, there's drones, the drone bees. Their only purpose is to mate with a queen uh, and then go back to the hive and eat honey. It's a pretty good gig. Second, there are worker bees. Now, these are the bees that you're going to see flying around everywhere. Uh, they're landing, landing on flowers, gathering nectar and pollen, 
uh, and taking that back to the hive. And not only that, but they also see to the baby bees uh, that are being born. They take care of them, they feed them, uh, make their little rooms nice and cozy. And the workers also regulate the temperature of the hive. It's fascinating. They'll sit on the front of the hive, fan their wings to regulate the temperature of the hive. And they do that to make sure that the honey is uh, procured well, as well as the baby bees are safe and the queen is safe. And the workers also protect the hive, either from wasps uh, or other insects, even bees from different hives, uh, or bigger things like raccoons, skunks, deer, etc. But these bees know something of supreme importance. There's an absolute truth about a honeybee hive that every single bee knows. And they'll give their life for that truth. The truth is, if you lose your queen, the hive dies. The queen is the only bee in the hive that can lay eggs. You see, a worker bee during the summer only lives about two months. During the winter, can live up to six months. The drones only live a couple months as well. But the queen, however, can live up to five years. So the whole point of the hive is to gather honey so they have food, so they can ultimately keep the queen alive and safe. If the queen dies, they immediately start to raise another queen. They know the absolute truth that if they don't have a queen, the hive cannot exist. And they will protect this truth no matter the cost. They will gladly give up their life for the sake of this truth. So keep that in mind as we go through this sermon. This is not a lecture on honeybees. I went to that yesterday. This is a lecture on God's word. But keep that in mind. So now we come to the remainder of this epistle. And what we want uh, to see is two things, a warning and an encouragement. A warning and an encouragement. Starting at verse 7 is first the warning. Turn there. So, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So what we shouldn't do is divorce verses 7 through 13 from the first six. He's building on the foundation that he established in those first six verses. Pulling the clarity of the truth, contrasting that with the deceivers of this world. Knowing the truth is of utmost importance to the Apostle John. And then to walk in light of that truth. Not just to know it, but to do it. But how can we know what the truth is? I mean, we hear so many different claims to truth. And this is where that warning about the deceivers come in. Now, the problem with deceivers is they're deceptive. And no one walks around wearing a hat that says deceiver on it. Right? 
they don't have a name badge that says, hello, my name is Deceiver. Um, so how can we tell the difference? Well, let's consider spies for a moment. Spies are like the ultimate receivers, right? I mean, that's their job is to look like what they're not. And there was this agent that worked for the FBI for 25 years, and his job was to catch spies, which is like the coolest job ever. Uh, and so he shared this story about a spy his team was trying to catch from Eastern Europe. And this is how he caught him, okay? He watched him walk out of a flower store. Doesn't sound that abnormal. Uh, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But if we look closely, we're going to notice something abnormal. Now, typically, how do Americans, how do we hold flowers? We hold it upright, right? The flower is up here like this, and we walk out with a bouquet of flowers like that. Well, he walked out with the flowers down, holding the stock, but holding them down like this, and just walked out of the flower store. He saw the spy do that, saw that it was different, and arrested him. He knew the truth of how an American looks. And when he saw the difference, he caught him. Well, we have the truth. We have God's word. We have the Bible. And so just the same, we must know the truth. And then when we hear something different, we can identify it as false right away and not be deceived. But again, what is that truth? What is John getting at? Well, he tells us it's the knowledge of Christ coming in the flesh. Now, generally speaking, you could describe this as uh, the, the full breadth of Christology, the idea of who Christ is. Uh, but specifically, what John was dealing with most directly was this heresy called docetism, uh, which is the denial of Christ coming in the flesh. There's actually a story about the Apostle John. We don't know for sure if it's true, uh, but I think it makes a point. Apparently, John was in the public baths at Ephesus. And uh, suddenly he ran out shouting, let us flee lest the building fall down. For Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. Now, Serenthus was a deceiver at the time of John, a contemporary of John, and he denied that Christ came in the flesh. In fact, tradition dictates that this epistle was, was written as a direct uh, refutation of Serenthus. Now, this story is telling, especially if it's true, John is not dealing with secondary issues. We're not talking about the color of the carpet here. He's dealing with the foundation of our faith. We are talking about Christ, and we are talking about the gospel. So there's two key things that John tells us the deceivers do. First is the denial of Christ. In the direct context, the denial of Christ coming in the flesh. 
but broadly speaking, denying the orthodox confessional view, the biblical view of Christ. So they would not affirm that Christ the man and Christ the eternal son of God are inseparably joined together in one person. Confessional Christianity, by contrast, states that Christ still maintains two perfect natures, 100% man and 100% God. Uh, I love the Chalcedonian Creed. It states it most beautifully when it says that Christ, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. To move beyond those four restrictions is to move beyond orthodox Christianity. And to preach anything other than that is not to preach salvation, but damnation. There is only salvation found in Christ. John tells us this at the end of verse 9. Whoever abides in this teaching has both the Father and the Son. But the converse is true as well. If you do not abide in this teaching, then you do not have the Father and the Son. It's a package deal. You get eternal life only through Christ. So the second thing the deceivers do are to go on ahead. That's an odd phrase. But do you catch the correlation back in verse 4? In verse 4, the children are walking in the truth. In verse 9, they're abiding in the teaching of Christ. Now, in the Greek, there's this nuanced difference. And you know, whenever I quote Greek, I had my wife help me. Just, I have to give credit where credit's due. But uh, there's this nuanced difference of words used here. In verse 4, the Greek word means, uh, to, for walk or walking, means to walk in or around or possibly even to follow. Abide means to remain, to stay, or continue. But the Greek word for go on ahead means to lead, go beyond, or even to go too far. There's a virtue in staying, abiding in the teaching that we have received. John is in essence saying, go back, read, reread, and study and immerse yourself in God's word. Don't try to find something new that goes beyond scripture, but stick with scripture. This type of temptation is especially vivid uh, for intellects and scholars. Um, this is a temptation that is, is definitely for everyone. But in the world of higher education, there seems to be this idea uh, in focus of finding the new or the novel. But this just isn't a modern problem. We know this. We see this with, with Paul and the Greeks at Areopagus. The Greeks were always looking for something new. Everyone always wants the new great idea, right? Every company wants the new thing 
that's going to sell well. But we must remember that absolute truth is always true. If something is absolutely, truly true, it can never be untrue. We must remember that truth is always relevant to today because it's always true. I know these things seem simple, but we need to remind ourselves of this. When we encounter something that we have never heard before, when there's an idea being put forth as new or a new way to look at Scripture, proceed with caution. I'm not necessarily saying that every new thing is wrong, but when we have God's Word that is so extensive, so comprehensive, and overall clearly stated. But not only that, we have 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity that is overwhelmingly affirmed and reaffirmed over and over and over again the same thing. When it comes to the gospel, to Christ, we must stand firm in the teaching first received by us in God's word and then reaffirmed to us by our brothers and sisters throughout history. Now John gives a practical example in verse 10 of what we should not do. Here John says, and you can read in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, in those days, uh, the apostles and teachers would send themselves and others out to different towns and cities. And when they showed up, they would rely upon uh, someone to show them hospitality by welcoming them into their home uh, so that they could stay there, allow them to set up a, a base camp, um, maybe even have their meetings in their home and teach from there. So, in the same way that Christ sends his disciples out into the world, Satan sent his deceivers out into the world as well. And they would show up. And, you, and if you welcome them into your home and allow them to teach from your home and gave them a platform to spread their lies, then you would be complicit with them in their deception. Now, this is not saying that you should never engage with or talk with people that do not believe the gospel or meet with people who are pushing forward a false gospel. But we, must not, uh, but we must be careful to not give them a platform to spread their lies. So, for example, it would not be wise of us to allow a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Mormon to come in here during the sermon and present, right? However, I'm personally convinced that it is entirely appropriate for us to meet with those individuals personally, to engage with them and share the gospel with them, listen to them in their story, 
And then with compassion and gentleness, you share the truth of the gospel with them. So what John is warning against is to not give the impression to either the individual or to the larger body of believers that you approve of what they are saying or that you agree with them. So first, a warning. Watch out for the deceivers, for they are sly, deceptive, and cunning. And the only way that we can differentiate between the deceivers and the truth bringers is by knowing the truth. Now John's second point, an encouragement. John encourages, as I've already, as I've already stated, to abide in the truth, to remain in Christ, and to know the commands of God and walk in them. Another way to put this, as Alistair Begg says, this is confessional Christianity versus what we just discussed and described, counterfeit Christianity. Throughout all of history, God has preserved and clarified his truth that is on display in Scripture. So we must not disregard the last 2,000 years, but use it as a confirmation of the truth. So, practically speaking, if you read Scripture, and I hope that you do, you'll read it and you're going to come to a conclusion of what that verse says. The, the truth of that verse. Then you go to what confessional Christianity says about that verse. And if you agree, you can be assured of your thinking. It's a confirmation. But if you disagree, that ought to give you pause. doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong. But if you disagree with the multitude of church fathers, and they're all agreeing with each other, and you're disagreeing with them, well, then you just might want to dig a little deeper. In reality, what John is encouraging us to do is what Moses told us to do in Deuteronomy. Moses says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's Moses saying? What's John saying? He's saying you should be soaked, bathed, submersed in God's word, so much so that when you are pricked, you bleed the word of God. The second encouragement that John gives us is also to love one another in truth, to have unity, not just unity, 
but unity in truth. To encourage each other, to be in a community of fellowship that helps protect each other, exhort each other, and to lift each other up. You see this in verse 5, as well as the last two verses. John emphasizes the importance of gathering together in personal fellowship. He longs for this type of interaction. In fact, did you see this? Our joy is not complete unless face-to-face fellowship is made consistently. This was not the first time John had spoken with this church. He clearly had a long-standing relationship with them. So we must not neglect the hospitality of gathering together with each other, showing love to one another, and worshiping God together. That's why we're here this morning, today, right now. This is of utmost importance because we can help each other walk in love and protect each other from deceivers. Remember those worker bees? They knew the fundamental truth. No queen, the hive dies. So they would do anything and everything to protect that truth. So we as people of God must know the fundamental truth of Jesus and protect it with all of our might and protect each other from the poison that comes from the deceiver. Now, John says in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So John is saying that the, the work that the apostles and the teachers have strived for to present the gospel and spread the free gift of Jesus, that that work should not be lost, but stay the course so that you may win, <coughs> excuse me, the full reward. What is that full reward? It's eternal life. How do you get eternal life? By putting your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to make it. <coughs> and how do you stay the course? How can you possibly love God? And how can we possibly begin to love one another? It is only by the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> we must occupy ourselves fully with the word of God and live a life in devotion to prayer. This is only made possible by the Spirit breathing life into us, quickening us so that we may respond to the Father's call and trust our very life to Christ. <coughs> you guys know where I'm going. 
Sometimes I feel like Oprah uh, when I preach and teach. Um, you know Oprah, right? She starts her show and she gives out these lavish and extravagant gifts to everyone. Well, guess what? You can have eternal life. And you can have eternal life. And you can have eternal life. And anyone, and I mean anyone, can have eternal life if they put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. The Christ that came in the flesh, the Christ that is truly man and truly God, the Christ that lived a perfect life, fulfilling God's covenant with man, to live in perfect obedience to God, the Christ that died a death, receiving the eternal punishment that we deserved, and then rose from the dead, demonstrating that the payment had been made in full. That Christ whom the prophets from the beginning have all declared, that Jesus himself taught concerning himself, and the continued teaching of the apostles, reaffirming as well as the creeds of the church fathers throughout history that have been handed down to us, is our own, that Christ is our only hope in this world. To teach anything else is deception. But to teach Christ is to give eternal life. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how amazing is your name. How astounding is your redemption for us. May it be that we die more and more to ourselves and live more and more to Christ. Please continue to give us your spirit to guide us and instruct us and encourage us as we walk in your truth. We give you all the glory and honor. Amen. Please stand with me.